Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode as well as one of 12 future episodes in the series from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. Dr. Dixon asks very provocative questions about how to create institutions that really take knowledge mobilization seriously. What kind of leadership is needed? How to create and implement explicit guidelines for behavior? How to overcome biases and create a culture that encourages real dialogue and diversity? He is very clear about the relationship between effective leadership and effective knowledge exchange and challenges us not to separate knowledge from human experience, but rather that knowledge is integral to human experience. Graham always pushes my thinking, and I hope he pushes your thinking also. I'm here in the Hampton Inn in Vancouver with Graham Dixon. How are you doing there, Peter? I'm great. Why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us what you do, where you're located, a little bit about your center. Sure. be happy to. Uh, Currently, I'm the director of the Center of Health Leadership and Research at Railroads University, which is a new entity that was set up by the university because the the importance of leadership in the field of health and health reform, health change, if you like, was deemed to be a very high-priority issue in society by our university, and we felt that as a university that essentially was in the business of generating knowledge for application purposes, that a center that would seek out, find, distill knowledge in the field of leadership and then apply it to some of the challenges the health sector is facing today would be an appropriate contribution for our university to make uh, given the, the nature of the kinds of programs and the kind of research we do, which is in the fields of leadership, in the fields of management, conflict resolution and environment, and applied communications. So you're all about knowledge exchange. Yes. In fact, uh, my VP once said that that's indeed the mandate of Royal Road University. It's really knowledge mobilization. Okay. So how did that come about? I mean, that's an interesting perspective. What is the, the path that led you to the work that you do now? Well, the, the university came about, I think, ultimately because uh, people in government at the time this university was being conceptualized saw that there were many traditional, what I would call, knowledge transfer programs in universities. Uh, The traditional kind of research that was being done, uh, the typical one-way purveyance of that information or knowledge through a teaching medium, Uh, you know, the classroom of 400 kids, the 18-year-olds or 19-year-olds that get the information, Uh, the traditional push methods of publishing, of uh, journaling, of conferencing. And this the actual impact of a lot of that knowledge and that research in terms of changed practice or in terms of influencing practice was deemed to be somewhat minimal. So the university said, why don't we create an institution that is solely to empower and enable career professionals to take the burgeoning knowledge that's out there about the world of work and apply it in the context of their their particular role or job. One of the, the ways that knowledge exchanges is described as bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. So what are some of the changes in behavior that you've seen by people engaging with with the center at Royal Roads? 
Well, I think there's there's changes in behavior at two or three different levels. There's uh, individual change behavior, so what I call the micro level of change, where an individual changes their view of the world or changes their skill set as they interact with the world. But then there's the what I would call work unit or organizational context in which those changes can be conceptualized. So someone may, for example, be uh, the leader of a team back at work and all of a sudden realized he's a whole new dynamic to engaging the people in their team back at work as a consequence of the knowledge and the exchange that they've been engaged with in, in our programming. And the third level is what I call the macro level, which is the systems level whereby we really need to look at complexity theory and other fields like that where we started analyzing complex adaptive systems right. and how those can in fact be influenced by knowledge and of course the concept of dialogue and the concept of facilitation in large groups, consensus building through process is a mechanism for creating change in organizations at that kind of a level. So how does, how does the work that you do and uh, the results that you're getting relate to CCL's mandate around lifelong learning. How do you fit those pieces together? Because there's some challenges around, I mean, we've gone through processes where we're thinking through, is this lifelong learning or teaching? Or is this lifelong learning or knowledge exchange? How do you see CCL's mandate around lifelong learning fitting into the work that you do? Or, or, or does it? Oh, I think it does. Um, and maybe CCL and I would have some slightly differences of views on how it might fit together, but here's mine. To me, learning is a very natural act. Everybody chooses to learn. It's the process by which you adapt to the surroundings around you and change or adjust in the most reasonable way to emergent circumstance, to needs that you have. Knowledge transfer can be considered pretty passive in the sense that you're putting it out there, but no one's necessarily engaging it. It's like putting a meal in front of somebody, and if they're not hungry, they won't eat it. To me, really sophisticated learning facilitation is creating and nurturing the environment such that people really want to imbibe the knowledge that's out there. And it becomes a way, and a true exchange for me is where the individual and the knowledge, be that an inanimate kind of knowledge that's there for the taking or be in the in another person uh, it's connected to the relevance of that individual's needs and to me that's the whole context of creating a learning environment that we need to know and learn and share much of the knowledge we have in the learning field with people in other environments so how do you support that? what are the what are the key elements of a of a learning environment well i think two or three key concepts or key principles underlying a learning environment. Number one is that you have to come into that environment with a predisposition towards inquiry. In other words, you don't come in to say, well, I'm going to tell this environment and I'm going to push something out into the environment because that's the antithesis of learning. Uh, a learning mindset says I'm going into that environment to see what's out there and to see what I can acquire from that environment. So, uh, number one, you need to create a culture. You need to have a mindset of inquiry when you go into a learning environment. Two, the environment itself must create the safe conditions such that you don't feel threatened by that environment to be inquiring in your nature. So it doesn't make sense to go into a, a meeting with a group of people for a knowledge exchange, for example, and then feel threatened by people in the room that if you exactly actually put your views out, you will be considered as a buffoon, 
or you won't uh, you have your ideas taken up or if you take up their ideas you might certain ideas in the room you might be considered to be inappropriate for the process or whatever so there's a, there's a cultural aspect to that very much so how would you what's your opinion about how to create a culture that supports knowledge exchange that supports lifelong learning creates that incentive for people to want to put their ideas out there, to engage in the exchange, to not feel like they're going to be knocked down because they're testing something that's new. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, I think you work very hard at, at, at establishing the ground rules for the activity that people will be part of prior to them coming. Okay. I think you... Explicitly? Like explicitly, you yes. Okay. Not, not implicitly, explicitly. Like I, I'm doing a session in a couple of days where we're bringing 100 people to together who represent a large system, components of a large system. That system will not work if all the components don't interact with each other right. as the system is intended. But each of those people cannot see the whole system. They cannot be the other person in the system and see that other person's perspective. So we have to create for that group of people, in order to be open to seeing the system of which they're a part, to have an inquiring mind and an environment in which they feel safe to put themselves out there and for others to, put, to be open to what others have to say. So we've created a guidelines for interaction. So we'll be putting those up on you know, the PowerPoint. Here are some of the key ideas and principles that we'd like to have you guide your participation in this session. And we'll have discussions about that with the people. We'll ask people to hold each other accountable for those. So how do people react to that? When you put up a guideline for interaction, I mean, these are all adults that you're working with. How do you lead them through that process of saying, I'm gonna we're going to ask you to modify your behavior because you're all going to benefit? What's the reaction you get from people? Well, usually I get, I get a pretty good, personally I get a pretty good reaction. I've seen it done many times. It can be done in many different ways. I mean, you can facilitate the creation of such rules. If you've got a smaller group, that's, that's the preferred approach. When you have a hundred people in the room, it's a little harder to have a facilitated discussion around the guidelines for the two-day interaction because you've only got them there for a period of time. So you ultimately can say, look, this is what past practice, what the literature has to say are the tools or the, the approaches that will generate a healthy environment for the kind of dialogue that we're having. we're having. You can have a short discussion at your table about this, and if anybody you know, has any major reservations, they're certainly welcome to, to express that. Uh, we publish them, put them in the front end of the package that they, they get, and then we explain the rationale behind each of those guidelines to people, which essentially, normally, most people buy the third component that, that I think is really vital to the creation of a, an effective knowledge exchange environment or a learning environment, if you like. And that is a sense of egalitarianism. Uh, people who come to that, regardless of their positional power in the, the world outside of the forum, have to be acknowledged and respected for having a piece of the knowledge that is required for the whole to be understood. And there's no hierarchy there. Well, that's a perfect segue into evidence, because one of the challenges around the discussion around evidence is the role of the expert. Power relationships between those who are supposed to know and those who are supposed to receive. The researcher and the research user, the expert and the client, the 
right? So there's that, that dynamic that currently exists that what you're saying is that when you engage in knowledge exchange, you have to acknowledge that everybody has a piece, and if you're missing a piece, in fact, you don't have the whole picture. Am I understanding that? That's correct. Okay. So how do you react to the conversations around evidence that some things are more systematically acquired and hence are of better quality or you know that's valid and this is not valid. One of the, the challenges around what is good evidence or resilient evidence or rigorous evidence is an assessment process. So when you hear the word evidence, what do you, what do you think and what does it bring up in your practice? Well, what it brings up to me is, is rigor in testing, if you like, the integrity of the information that is being presented as knowledge. And that, that's an expertise that certain people in our society develop and, and have. And uh, that's great. So they should have it. However, politicians have expertise, and that's in dealing with complex social issues, uh, dealing with people and explaining issues to people and gaining support of people. It's a different expertise, but they're equal in the sense of for, uh, for that knowledge sometimes to be used, the politician both has to hear it and then find out how to convince the public or engage the public in accepting that evidence as meaningful for decision-making. Right. So from the point of view, there's no hierarchy of importance between the person with expertise and other people. They're equal in that sense. But each has a contribution to make that is their expertise. Right. And some people have, if you like, knowledge creation expertise. That's marvelous. That doesn't make them any better than anybody else. What I'm hearing a little bit is the concept of diversity. That okay, very much so. So that, in fact, in the knowledge exchange process, you have to have a diverse set of knowledges. And within those knowledges, there are things that are more well-known or more accepted than, than other things, but there's still, you need to have that diversity. You need to have many different perspectives in order to have what is potentially an integrated system or an integrated perspective. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. 